Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Dr. Jamie Weiner. Jamie is a psychologist and co-founder, along with his wife, Dr. Caroline Friend, of Inheriting Wisdom, a consultancy for high net worth families. Dr. Weiner's experience as a clinical psychologist lends unique insights to his understanding of the complex dynamics existing in families, businesses, and not-for-profits. His expertise with leveraging the human capital that lies in multi-generational, affluent families extends into the family office and business spaces where families' needs and their business are often linked and complicated. Dr. Weiner is also the author of the book, The Quest for Legitimacy, How Children of Prominent Families Discover Their Unique Place in the World. He's also offered numerous articles and speaks frequently. Thanks so much for joining us, Jamie. Absolutely. My pleasure, my pleasure to be here, David. So the subject of today's episode is three generations of the legendary Hollywood Douglas family, Kirk, Michael, and Cameron Douglas. Kirk Douglas was an American actor and filmmaker. After an impoverished childhood, he made his film debut in The Strange Love of Martha Ivers in 1946 with Barbara Stanwyck. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, Douglas was a major box office star, playing opposite some of the leading actresses of that era. During his career, he appeared in more than 90 films and was nominated for three Academy Awards. He was named by the American Film Institute as the 17th greatest male star of classic Hollywood cinema. Until his death in 2020, the cause of which has been kept private by his family, he was one of the very few remaining living stars of Hollywood's golden age. Kirk was married twice, his first marriage to Diana Dill, which lasted from 1943 to 1951, produced our second subject, Michael Douglas. An actor and producer, Michael arguably has surpassed his father's great fame, receiving numerous accolades, including two Academy Awards, five Golden Globe Awards, a Primetime Emmy Award, the Cecil B. DeMille Award, and the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. Known for his portrayals of flawed antiheroes, Michael specializes in playing characters who are weak, culpable, morally indolent, compromised, and or greedy for illicit sensation without losing that basic probability of potential for ethical character that we require of a hero. His most famous role, however, was definitely no hero, at least not to most. As Gordon Gecko in the Wall Street franchise, he became the greedy yuppie personification of the me generation, leaving behind the lasting catchphrase, greed is good. Michael's been married twice, most famously to his current wife, movie star Catherine Zeta-Jones. However, it was his first marriage in March 1977, which lasted through 1995, to Diandra Luca, the daughter of an Austrian diplomat, that brought us our third subject, his son Cameron Douglas, in 1978. Cameron, also an actor, has appeared in four films. Jackie Chan's Mr. Nice Guy runs in the family, National Lampoon's Adam and Eve, and Loaded, 
In his runs in the family, he appeared together with his father and grandfather and grandmother. Unfortunately, instead of for his talent, he's most notable for his substance abuse problems and run-ins with the law. He's been arrested for drug offenses several times. In 2007, he was charged with felony possession of a controlled substance after police officers found a syringe filled with liquid cocaine in a car he was in. In 2009, he was arrested for possession of half a pound of methamphetamine, which due to the large amount of the drug seized, he was charged with intent to distribute. In 2010, he pleaded guilty to conspiracy to distribute drugs and heroin possession after his girlfriend smuggled heroin hidden inside an electric toothbrush and passed it on to him while he was under house arrest. He was sentenced to five years in prison for possessing heroin and dealing large amounts of methamphetamine and cocaine out of a New York hotel room. When Michael Douglas publicly assumed blame for, quote unquote, being a bad father, but said that without prison intervention, Cameron was going to be dead or somebody was going to kill him. I think he has a chance to start a new life, and he knows that. Cameron was released from prison in 2016 and in 2019 authored the book Long Way Home about his struggles and experiences after his convictions. Now, these three generations of Douglas actors neatly illustrate both the advantages and potential pitfalls of being born into a prominent family. Kirk built himself from nothing into one of the biggest movie stars ever. His son, Michael, parlayed his status as Kirk's son and his own talent, of course, to become perhaps even a bigger star than his legendary father. Cameron, unfortunately, wilted under the burdens of carrying such a famous name and fell victim to substance abuse, slope no doubt made more slippery by his great means and ability to invoke the Douglas name to perhaps try to get out of trouble. Jamie, in your book, you discuss the difficulties that children born into prominent families can experience in finding their place in the world. What are some of the factors that make this search more difficult than it would initially appear? You know, David, what a great story to work off of. Just as a little bit of introduction, the book is based upon a five-year period of interviewing rising gen family members from around the globe. And the single biggest factor that everybody shared was the, um, the challenge of measuring up to the generation that came before. And you offered a couple examples of, of getting stuck and um i don't know I, I never interviewed them so i don't know their lives intimately but i can guess from the kinds of conversations that i've had with people in istanbul in the united states in costa rica across the globe that all of them at some point had opportunity absolutely but also opportunity can't be just financial. And all of them at some point had to struggle to figure out who they were and how they were going to take ownership of their own lives. You know, when we're talking about communication between the generations, obviously, you know, it seems easy. Oh, just talk to your family. Um, but in many families, especially when you're dealing with sort of first generation wealth creators who can be a very dominant personality sort of by necessity, the idea of just simply talk to your kids is maybe a bit harder uh, than, than it actually, in practice, than it is to just say. Yeah, you know, the truth of the matter is um, it takes the right kind of parent for that conversation to happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I were going to describe the experience of all of the people that um, we interviewed, one, they experienced a sense of isolation. They feel, felt like they were living something that they really couldn't go talk about unless they were in a very safe environment. They struggled to have a, a sense of 
agency of being able to control and not not be live under the shadow of their parents. And Cameron is a good example of what happens when you feel like you can't have impact on the world. Although it sounds like later in his life, he started to turn things around. So for children, you know, I guess, and children can be of any age. Often in this show, we talk about children and we're, we're still talking about 60 year olds, you know, for, for children of prominent families, what are the steps that they can take, right? In your book, you detail sort of four steps that they can take to sort of develop this sense of self-worth while still honoring their family and honoring those that came before them. Where does that start? So I, I have to start about chuckling, chuckling about the term children. The um, oldest person I interviewed was Henry Kaiser, third generation from the Kaiser family. And at the time I interviewed him, he was 75 years old. <laughs> this, this comes up a lot on the show. The children so, in, in air quotes. You know, um, so there are four phases. And these are not linear. So it's like, not like step one, step two, step three, step four. And they can repeat themselves. But the first one is, is a sense of awareness about something being different. My favorite story about it is a woman who grew up in a diamond family Dad came home and taught her how to count diamonds, count by using diamonds. She went mm -hmm. off to school. Not everybody else counted using diamonds. That's second favorite story of that is somebody who grew up in an amusement park and had a zoo in his backyard. Um, but there are various kinds of awareness that take place. The second phase, and I think this is somewhat true of everybody, is you're born into one family and you're aware of the family and you're aware of the culture. And as you begin to get older, you begin to be exposed to the other, uh, the outside world. And there's a tug of war, which is the name of the phase that at first may seem kind of cute for parents, but as you come home a little bit older and are doing things that are maybe not as acceptable in the family culture, not such a good thing. I grew up in a famous rabbi's house, and when I picked a, a woman who wasn't Jewish to, to marry, it, it was cute that I was, you know, but I also had to have her convert because I, I couldn't be that far away from what I was brought up with. Mm -hmm. The third phase is the phase of exploration. Um, I'm concerned about this phase in our current culture because there's so many helicopter parents and so many parents are, uh, you know, so involved in their kids' lives. But it's really the the point in your life when you can go out and explore the world. And I can talk more about that. But the last phase, which is really the 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 one that you shoot for, it's not something like, boy, you get there and you're there, but it's really when you begin to feel that you have agency, you feel like you're in control of your decisions. It's actually when you can be most valuable to the family you grew up in, to the world in general. It's, it's when you begin to flourish and able to be creative. Interesting. So... Let's sort of address these in order, even though I know that you said that it's not necessarily uh, have to happen in this order, but let's just start with awareness for just for the sake of having some organizational structure here. You know, I think it's a big debate in the wealth management community and, and amongst parents, uh, this idea of sort of 
when to tell children, if you tell children how much money you have, when, how much do you tell them? Um, and I've always sort of chuckled at that. I realized that that's a legitimate debate, but also, you know, just the reality is that kids are not stupid. And even as you mentioned, a girl who grew up counting diamonds, learning how to count, like perhaps that would be the most oblivious possible situation, right? It was completely detached from any kind of reality. But the second that person went to school, I imagine they realized, oh, wait, other people don't do this. Like they figured it out pretty fast once they were faced with it. They didn't need their parents to tell them that, oh, we're different. So this awareness, I think, you know, it kind of comes on its own, right? You know, David, is such a great comment, and it's really a comment to make to wealth advisors, because I've spent so much of my career listening to the conversation about how much is enough, what's too much, how are we going to prepare the next generation. When I did the interviews, ironically, that's not what people talked about. Mm. It wasn't the center of their conversation, and that may be why um, somewhere between 60 and 90% of rising gen family members don't stay with their parents' advisors because the parents' advisors don't talk to them about what is it like growing up in this family and form a personal relationship with them, understanding that they have their own goals and objectives. Surprisingly enough, more and more uh, you know, have advanced in education. And a lot of them know finance, so they know more more about numbers sometimes than founders of companies do. Interesting. So how much does that disconnect in terms of the kids have to do with like the kids' relationship with money, with this idea of like realizing that it's our money, some some portion of it is going to be my money versus this is my dad's money or my mom's money, given whoever the patriarch slash matriarch that the, the breadwinner is. So in any family and that has wealth, there's various times at which there's a conscious awareness and discussion about money. We interviewed somebody whom mom sat him down in high school and said, you know, we're a privileged family. We have we have assets that, you know, only one percent, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little less have in the world and he was thrown by the whole experience went off to college realized the money meant tremendous amount of opportunities that nobody else he went to college with had and ended up coming home and spending a year at home kind of reorganizing himself in order to uh, then go back and make a decision about what he wanted to do and ended up with advanced degrees and um, doing really well. But money is a is a mixed blessing. And I know there are people who just spend it. And I, I get that. And I understand the concern about spoiled kids and all of that. But that's not the majority of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a shocking amount of self-awareness, if I'm being honest, the kid you just described. <laughs> um, you know, it seems like most you know, wealthy kids would either just take it for granted or they'd be almost embarrassed by it and just want to be a regular kid. But this idea of uh, sort of being able to like calmly take a step back and like realize your means offer you these opportunities and then formulate a plan to take advantage of them, that's unbelievably mature. I'm not sure he saw this mature. I, I I think he felt he was a confused kid. And um, 
the maturity was was coming home, deciding he needed to take some time. And he actually was kind of depressed for the beginning of that period mm -hmm. of time. Unsurprising. So the second step you mentioned is this tug of war as the, I guess, the different aspects of their personality sort of go to war with each other versus this idea of who you want to be in the outside world versus who your family kind of demands that you be. Um, you mentioned religion specifically uh, in your case as as one of the sort of flashpoints where this can happen. I imagine, unfortunately, race in a similar context is another one. What are some of the other sort of flashpoints and issues that you see have seen come up uh, in your interviews and such where sort of this tug of war centers? So one, I, I emphasize in the book that I'm talking about privilege and not just money. So religion would fall into that privilege category. Mm -hmm. The common one that I think many advisors run into is either in the business or out of the business, mm -hmm. which direction to take. And that gets played out really on both sides because also the generation before going in the business, I'm not so sure, or yeah, he's, you know, this is really somebody to bring into the business. That's a whole long topic in itself. But there are families that have liquid liquidity events and some are big enough to um, set up family offices. And then there's really a whole discussion that goes on about whether the family is actively going to do things. They have a, a state of involvement or are they just going to hire people to do it for them? So that would be some examples that I have. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting idea, something we haven't super explored on the show. You know, we talk a lot as I'm sure you know about the in the business, out of the business idea and, and sort of you know, how wealth creators kind of the business is their most favorite child in a lot of aspects. Um, but this idea of a family experiencing a liquidity event and then having sort of this crisis of, you know, personality of conscious of, okay, well, what do we do now? Um, something that we haven't really super unpacked on that show, on our show. So I think that's like a very interesting look at it. This, uh, you know, uh, sort of, just get stuck holding the bag in a way of, of money. And it's like, okay, well, what do we do with it? Well, yeah, because liquidity causes problems for everybody. You know, somebody who spent their whole life build, build, building something now has to figure out what they're going to do with their life unless they're really going to manage their own money, which could or could not be a great thing. So, And even if they're working with advisors, is it really the skill set that they have? And a business is something tangible. You can go have mm -hmm. your kids visit it. Yeah. Money, you know, unless you're miser and you're going to sit there counting it, it doesn't exist physically. It doesn't have a space. And, um, and it causes families to think about um, what do we do from here? Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I know, um, you know, there's like a saying that I'm going to butcher, but it's, uh, it's like, it's one thing to, tell your kids that they need to read more, but it's like a whole nother thing if they see you reading. Um, and that, I guess, is kind of, you know, in terms of teaching the kids values about money and about hard work and such that it's one thing for them to see, you know, for you to tell them you need to work hard, but it's another for them to have seen you going to work every day. And if that ceases to be part of the equation, then it sort of leaves a, a large element of, you know, an important element, I think, of just of example out of the sort of teaching values issue. Yeah, you know, at one point in my time, 
I got introduced to somebody who happened to be in, in, in the arts who by his late 30s, early 40s, was done working. He, he had enough. And he all of a sudden became very concerned about what the message was for the kids that he was raising. Mm -hmm. So the third uh, aspect you mentioned, and this is the one that you expressed you were the most concerned over the future of, is this idea of exploration. Um, mind just uh, expanding on what, you know, beyond the sort of helicopter parent issue, why you're sort of concerned about this one? Yeah, particularly in, in um, the wake of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, it used to be that um, even in my life, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I got my father came home with an English racing bike. And if, from that point on, I would spend my days, you know, nobody could find me. There was no, no GPS. And, you know, I just, it was my period of freedom. I had to know when to come home at, at night. Now I watch parents who follow their kids on GPS. I know some that call home every day, which is fine, but they don't make decisions unless they ask. And how do you learn how to make mistakes? Mm -hmm. And how do you learn to explore the world unless, um, and a lot of the people I interviewed had traveled, you know, they had done philanthropic experiences. They did things to really um, broaden who they were before they made a decision about um, what they were going to do with their own personal lives. Mm -hmm. So if I'm understanding you correctly here, the, uh, you know, uh, one of the key aspects of the, you know, of what this exploration step hinges on is, is separation to a certain degree. Absolutely. You couldn't say it better, David. You know, in the old days, a rite of passage literally meant that you you went away, you, you, you separated from your family, and then you found your way back into, into the, at that, that point would have been the tribe. Now it's the globe. And, um, and we're not real good at doing that at this point. Mm -hmm. So, the final sort of element you mentioned is the idea of taking control of one's life. And now that seems um, when we say it that way to be sort of a, an awfully large category, right? Where it's like, okay, well then figure it out. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure you don't mean it that way. So do you mind sort of uh, expanding on that one and sort of, sort of make it a little bit more uh, palatable? It, absolutely. So the, there's been a lot of press about Prince Harry mm -hmm. and do we view Prince Harry as the ne'er-do-well who just didn't understand what was coming to him and didn't want to follow the rules and live up? Or was Prince Harry on a quest to sort out who he is and he happened to get involved in, in you know, American culture, um, individualistic world, is was William his brother? You know, everybody asks when he steps to the crown. Well, is is he going to measure up? William built a portfolio of fourteen billion dollars. He, he did work on climate change. I mean, it, it's not. Um, he did things. Both of them did things to take ownership of different parts of your life. My 
writing the last book I wrote was an act of ownership because it was really finding something where I could feel that I would do something that would make a difference for others. Interesting. So when we're talking about these these sort of steps, these aspects um, that sort of a child of a prominent family needs to sort of go through, is it just on them to sort of figure this all out? What role do sort of mentors both within the family and then outside the family play um, in this this journey, I guess, for lack of a better term? Mentors, peers, this, um, this March, we're doing our first um, experience for Rising Gen, a one-year program that we're going to start for, with a four-day retreat in Oxford. It, you know, m- my goal beyond the book I wrote is to turn this into something that really begins to make a difference in the lives of Rising Gen so that they really are prepared whether they want to go back into the family business or stay out of the family business, whether they're going to inherit, um, whether they're going to give philanthropic, all of that that's involved in um, what goes on in the lives of the rising gen. So, and this is a bit of a tougher question, but if you had a single piece of advice, because our audience is largely financial professionals, advisors, um, unfortunately, likely not, the uh, the scions of prominent families, <laughs> um, but if they're looking to be that mentor, because I think that's probably where they would come into this equation. What what are some I guess tips for lack of a better word? What are some you know, things they should concentrate on on sort of being the best mentor in that regard uh, for these children of prominent families that they can be? So the first thing is they need to recognize that they're getting hired by the the giants who are the heads of the family. Mm-hmm. And they need to figure out how to get past being seen as only part of that shadow. And the best way to do that is just to begin to talk about the realities of the situation, not the amount of money, but just the, uh, you know, your dad's been, your dad, your mom, somebody's been extremely successful. Does that cause it? Any pressure on you about thinking about who, what you want to do? And, 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 you know, just it, it it all goes back, and I think you said it earlier, to figuring out how do you have a a personal, authentic conversation with somebody growing up in this situation? Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, we're all out of time. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jamie Weiner, for being fantastic and for helping us sort of unpack a a very difficult and complicated topic. Uh, his book, again, is Quest for Legitimacy, How Children of Prominent Families Find Their Unique Place in the World. Uh, thanks so much for being on, Dr. Wayne. David, it's my pleasure. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.